You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump into chapter 29. And like I said, this is Job's defense. So this is his last, this is his final argument. So he's going to summarize for us everything that he's experienced. And what I think is beneficial for us about that this morning is that maybe, just maybe, in all of sort of Job's complaining that we've read about, in all of his his, um, weeping and mourning, And maybe we've lost sight of the fact that, that Job is doing so um, because it's utterly appropriate. That what has happened to Job is calamitous indeed, is in fact worthy of this kind of protestation, of this kind of, uh, of anger outright from Job, of this kind of dissatisfaction with his current station. And so, the first few verses in Job, here's what, here's what he's going to describe for us. He's going to describe for us what his relationship with God was like. And this is what it says. Verse 2, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when His lamp shone upon my head, and by His light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. And Job is looking back and he describes this unique relationship that he has with the Lord where the Lord guarded him. Right? This is the same language that Satan used in chapter 1 to describe God's protection over Job. This impregnable fortress around Job that that Satan, even Satan, had to come and ask permission to circumvent. He's looking back and saying, God, You you guarded me. But not only did God guard Job, God guided Job, right? It tells us that His lamp shone upon His head and that it was by His light that Job walked through the darkness. God was a guide to him. A guide who went before him to show him the way. Not behind him checking to see if he would make the right choices. No, Job was not only guarded, but he was guided. He was never uncertain about his path because it was God who walked in front of him. And it was in His light that he found his path. But not only did God guard and guide Job, this wasn't just sort of some uh, mutually beneficial arrangement. This wasn't just uh, God is my sort of security guard that I have hired to ensure that nothing evil befalls me, right? It's not just transactional in nature. God guards, God guides, but God also, in verse 4, walks in friendship with Job. When the friendship of God was upon the tent of Job. And we've seen this word before. We saw it last week in chapter 19. In fact, it was translated a little bit differently. It was translated with, with sort of a, an adjective in front. It was translated as intimate. 
friendship. The sense of one in whom one confides and one in whom one has confidence. It was this kind of relationship that Job walked in with God where he was guarded, guided, and experienced the joys of intimate friendship and companionship with the Lord of Lords, Sovereign of Heaven. Job's life with regards to his relationship with God was so extravagantly blessed that only the language of exaggeration is really adequate to even begin describing it. Which is why we get this funny verse in verse 6 when it talks about Job's steps being washed with butter, which to us sounds more like a safety hazard than a blessing. And the rock poured out for him streams of oil. This time when he was in his prime, which is also translated as his autumn days, the days uh, when the harvest would come, the time for reaping, the time for gathering in all of the benefits of his hard work. Those are the days that he is looking to. When he's talking about buttery steps, he's talking about this idea that uh, the richness of the resource of something like butter, something that came from having cows and property in which those cows did well and were able to produce those kinds of things, that there was such a bounty of that that he walked upon it, that he trod upon it, that it flew over all of his life. That the, What the rock produced for him was not barrenness, nothing. And it was not only water, but it was oil. This precious, precious resource flowing from the rock into Job's life. Job's summary defense here begins with pure nostalgia. It begins with Job longing for the good old days. This is Job saying, I want my life back. And why shouldn't he? Right? Because let's be reminded of what Job, what Job characterizes his relationship with God as now. Right? In chapter 19, he describes God not as his intimate friend, not as his guard, not as his guide, but as his adversary. You want to talk about flipping the world upside down. Well, for Job, it has happened. What a precipitous fall. All in just the matter of months. Right? That's what it says in verse 2. Oh, that I were as in the months of old. He's saying, just a few months ago, this is what my life looked like. That means that this taste that Job is describing is not some taste that he's forgotten and that he's trying to put words to but it's a taste that's still in his mouth that he can still feel the absence of. He still remembers what it looks like to be guarded, guided, and walk in friendship with God the Father. And now that that taste is absent, he longs for it to return. Like Abraham, whom God, whom God called his friend, Job had been one who confided in and whom also God confided His will. 
And this had made the pain of having God now as his enemy all the more distressing. For he had known what it was to have the Almighty with him. As it says in verse 4. This is the essence of that phrase that we're all so familiar with. It's better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all, right? There's a great debate over whether that statement is true or not, and I'll leave that debate for another time. But one could say the same here. Is it truly better to have experienced this kind of favor with God and to have lost it than to never have experienced it at all? God, both with him and for him in every way, now his adversary. But you see, it's not just relationship that with God that Job has lost. This is not the only place in which the fall of Job, this casting down is so evident. Job is not just nostalgic about the relationship with God that he feels he's lost. He's also nostalgic about his dignity among the people that he has also lost. And so he recounts for us what his relationship to society looked like just a few short months ago. In verse 7 it says this, When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew. And the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouths. To sum it up, this essentially just tells us that Job was a big deal. But I want us to understand really and truly what it is that's taking place here, right? Because he's using some some cultural context that would be helpful for us to understand when he mentions a place like the gate or a seat in the square. And this is what we need to know. Essentially what Job is saying is that in the most important social hub, the gate of the city, the place where uh, commerce took place, the place where uh, people assembled, the place where legal rulings were made by either the city's elders or the kings. In that place, Job had a reserved seat. A seat of privilege at the city gate. And when Job came to take that seat, something incredible happened. A great deference was given to Job. And not just from people that it was expected from. As an elderly man, Job walked in, you would expect young people to give him deference. This is what it says. The young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. So where you would expect a young person to give up their seat on the bus for an elderly man or woman, you would not expect that self-same woman for that self-same man, old of age, to stand upon your entrance. And yet for Job, this was his reality. And not only did people stand or withdraw in his presence, but it tells us that people waited to speak until he spoke. And not just any people, but the princes refrained from talking. The nobles, their voice was hushed. 
So picture a blend, this place, this, this city gate, a blend of the Supreme Court, the White House, both houses of Congress, the most significant news media and websites in society, all merged into one melee of power and influence, and in that place, Job stands ahead above. But what's Job's like, life like now? Verse 1 of chapter 30 says, But now they laugh at me. Men who are younger than I. Right? So even the basic level of respect is gone. Men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. Verse 9, I have become their song. I am a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me because God has loosed my cord and humbled me. They have cast off restraint in my presence. So where Job used to walk in reverent honor, he now walks in irreverent dishonor. And this is not a cagey, restrained dishonor. But like, I should be careful the way I phrase this. This is open and utter rejection. But it's not just open and utter rejection from those who used to honor him, those who were noble, those who were princes, those who were esteemed well in society. It's dishonor from the dishonorable, right? That's what he says in verse 1. Men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. Now, dogs for us are a a bit different proposition now, right? In that um, most of us get a bigger share of the bed than we do. um, And and things like that. But at this point in time, um, dogs are the, the lowest of the low. They're utterly utilitarian. They serve to shepherd the flock. That's it. And so to be someone who is set among the dogs of someone's flock is to hold the lowest place of service. To be in the lowest place of a household. And he says the men that are mocking him now are men who he would have deemed unfit even for that base of a job. He's not just an outcast. He's an outcast of the outcast. And their mocking has grown so bold that it's not just something that they snicker in private to one another, but it's something that they they do openly and in public that they went to the trouble of writing a song about. And not only did they write the song, but they didn't memorize the song, and they now recall it every time that he comes around. And Job says that this has happened because God has loosed the cord that secured his tent. That where it used to be friendship that was upon his tent, God has now removed his hand. And men of low esteem have taken this opportunity to unbridle their tongues, embolden their posture in His presence. And so hopefully for us now, we, we begin to empathize a little bit more again, maybe. Maybe we, like Job's friends, had grown tired of his complaints, grown weary of him insisting his innocence, protesting that this is not what he had merited. 
the fact that Job is in despair here really shouldn't come as a surprise to us at this point. Because here's what, what Job is describing. Job is essentially describing the two things that should have remained with him even if everything else failed him. Right? As a man of integrity, the fact that he lost his children, the fact that he lost his property, his belongings, the fact that he lost all of those things, the, the two things that should have remained should have been, one, his relationship with God, and then two, this esteem in society that they should have at least given him the benefit of the doubt, right? The rest of chapter 29 gives us a great dis- description of why it is that Job has merited this honor in society. By feeding those who were hungry. By being a father to the fatherless. By welcoming the stranger. By, by breaking the teeth of the unjust. By bringing justice to bear in his community. By being open and generous with all that he had you would think that they would have given him the benefit of the doubt. And yet, no one will hear his case. No one. We saw last week, Job 19. Everyone has abandoned him. His family members, his servants, his friends, his intimate friends and his casual friends, his acquaintances, those whom he has served, those whom he has been served by. All of them. No one will hear his case. And so we arrive at chapter 31. And chapter 31 is the final thing that Job wishes to say about himself as he prepares to meet his God. And what he's going to do is he's going to make as honest an account as he possibly can of his life. And then he's going to pray punishment and justice upon himself if that is what he merits. Now that's a bold prayer to pray, right? I have never once prayed that God would give me what I deserve. Because I know what that means. I can count even today and would need more than my two hands and toes to enumerate the ways in which I have betrayed God, walked in unrighteousness. I would never pray this prayer. And yet Job is confident in his righteousness. You can hear Job crying out to the Lord in this, right? Verse 5 of chapter 31, If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, if my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hand, then let me sow and another eat and let what grows for me be rooted out. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, if I have withheld anything that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone, if I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, if his body has not blessed me, and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder, and let my arm be broken from its socket. Get this one. 
Verse 24, if I have made gold my trust, or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant, or because my hand found too much. Verse 29, another one. If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me, or exulted when evil overtook me. Look at what just. I don't know about you guys, but I'm reading all these and going, yep, did that, yep, did that. Placed confidence in gold, check. Rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me, check. And yet Job is saying, I have not done any of these things. And then we arrive at verse 35, and this is what he says. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince I would approach him. If my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, if I have eaten of its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, then let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are in. So what does Job say? First, Job, as he has been throughout the book, he begs God to answer him. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. But I mentioned at the beginning, let's sort of keep this view of courtroom in mind. This is Job at his most eloquent, again, before the judge and before the jury, making this eloquent case for why it is that he should be found just, that he should be restored. And I want us to keep this courtroom imagery in mind because much of Job's language, not just in this particular portion, but throughout the book, is legal in nature. And so he says, here is my signature. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Job says that he will personally sign the oath of innocence that he is making. He's essentially saying, I have not perjured myself in this testimony. And he says he will wear the indictment of his adversary with pride. He would carry it on his shoulder, bind it on him as a crown. Imagine that, right? Imagine a criminal. Imagine you or I walking around with the rap sheet, the charge sheet that lists all of our crimes tied to our shoulder or prominently placed on our head. That would be strange behavior for a guilty person. But Job is not a guilty person. He is confident that he can give an account of all of his steps to the one who keeps an account of all of his steps. And that when the accounting is done, he will be able to walk boldly into the presence of the Almighty. This is a bold and wonderful scene when this suffering servant who bears in his person all the marks of being accursed by God finally receives the charge sheet of his sins. It will turn out to be a glorious vindication for his integrity. That's what Job pictures. And so these are the final words of Job, other than a few smatterings here and there throughout the rest of the book when 
Job gets taken to the woodshed. What I, what I most want us to see in this text, more than any particular application point, is that here Job is foreshadowing, prefiguring another. Another with a relationship with God that is uniquely intimate. Another who suffers for righteousness' sake. Another whose relationship with God is lost, forsaken even. Another whose dignity in society is removed from Him. Another whose cries go unheard. And spoiler alert, another who is restored. As Job will be restored in the chapters to come. Obviously here we are talking about the man from Isaiah 53. One that we considered stricken by God. Afflicted. We're talking about Jesus. That the Bible really is about this one man, this one story who came and in perfection lived out the fullness of Job's experience and who is that kinsman redeemer that we talked about last week who has come and made redemption in walking through the very shoes of Job. And this is what the Scriptures then mean when we go to Hebrews and we find out that we have an empathetic high priest. Because Jesus is not someone who has not suffered loss. Because Jesus is not someone who has not heard His cry and not heard a reply. But the marvel of Jesus' suffering and the marvel of Jesus' true innocence being sacrificed on the altar of our sinfulness is precisely that. It's that because of Jesus, we can, like Job, even though we are unlike Him in our righteousness, right? in that all of these claims that He has made to righteousness, all of us can pretty much look at and, and, and recall a time in our lives where at one point we have walked unrighteously. But that because of Jesus, we, like Job, can wear our rap sheet with pride. You want to know why? Because our rap sheet reads innocent. And because of Jesus, we can enter into the same courtroom that Job is in, making his defense, and we can sue God for his grace. We can sue God for his friendship for His guidance, for His guarding, because He owes it to Jesus and we are in Jesus. What is due Christ is due us, not because of our morality, but because of our Savior. You see, there's a reason I wanted to spend some time in the book of Proverbs, short though it was, before arriving at Job. Because here's the thing. In chapters 29 through 31, proverbial wisdom goes out the window. All of the good things that are supposed to befall the righteous as they walk according to God's statutes, all of those things that are supposed to come because of those things, none of them come to Job. In fact, they're removed. It's literally the opposite. This is just another reminder that 
our morality does not guarantee success. In fact, in Job's case, again, it's the exact opposite. And Jesus Himself reiterates this idea when He says in that blessed sermon, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. They will see the kingdom of God. And so the question that I guess I want to answer is this. What do we do when the days of our harvest, our prime, seem to have escaped us? What do we do when relationship with God seems distant? When dignity in society is lost? Well, I would propose three simple things. And the first one is what I said just a moment ago. We should sue God for His friendship, for His guidance, and guarding through prayer. And listen, I know that that language is provocative because it makes it seem as though we are owed something. And yet, the marvelous wonder of what it is that Christ has done, the magnitude of what it is that Christ has done, is that God does in fact owe us that if we are in Christ. That being the caveat. If we are in Christ. And so we can come before Him in prayer. And we can, like Job, plead for Him to be just. And not just to us according to our morality, but just according to the work of Jesus. The perfect life lived. The unjust death died. And the risen victory that He now experiences ascended to the right hand of the Father. The second thing that we can do is we can like Job, remind ourselves of God's past mercy and recognize that even in difficulty and suffering, His mercies are new every morning. And then the third thing, and what I think sometimes escapes us when we look at this text, is we can press on walking in righteousness. You see, often our response when, when bad things happen to us our response is to throw our hands up in the air and say, you know what, forget about all this anyway. I'm just going to do what I want. Because walking faithfully to God is not bringing the rewards that I want it to bring. My genie's not answering. But what does Job say in all of this, right? Remember this precipitous fall, this relationship that he's lost, this dignity that is lost on top of all of the material things that he's lost, including his own children. And he still says this in chapter 31, verse 1. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous? and disaster for the workers of iniquity. Job is saying, my entire experience is contrary to proverbial wisdom, and yet I know this to be true. So even though I am experiencing what I believe to be injustice, I know that God is just, and I know that it will not benefit me to now begin walking contrary to all that I have dedicated my life. This is staggering, a staggering confession of God's faithfulness in the middle of a confession of Job where he says, 
God, I think you've done me wrong. But I really believe, really believe that the answer in those moments, in our response to suffering, is not to dive headfirst into unrighteousness, but to continue walking in righteousness, knowing, knowing that God will set all of those things right, knowing that we have a kinsman redeemer, knowing that we have a, a Savior who actually walked perfectly, who actually deserved the riches and the glory that accompany a righteous life before the Father, and who experienced the forsaking of God so that we might experience His friendship. You see, Job's cries are, are, are about to be answered. But for Jesus, they weren't. Matthew 27 says this. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 